Bet you wish you were here. Well, guys, welcome back to my podcast. You're very, very welcome. Sorry, here now, guys. I'm just kind of battling an angle grinder there outside the door as well. If you can, if you can hear that, I'll just leave it in because I'm just trying to give you a snapshot of real life. This is a real gritty realism kind of podcast. So if you do hear an angle grinder, you know, enjoy it as best you can. And so, guys, in terms of my Europe subsection, I mean, I don't want to feckin' brag, but like, I don't know, is there many better placed to talk Europe? than today's guest. He is Artie's Europe editor. He is a published author on Brexit in a hit book. He's also a dairyman, so he understands the intricacies of the North better than most journalists, potentially, in Brussels, you'd have to imagine. And, uh, yeah, look, I've given it away. It's Tony Connolly. <laughs> it's Tony Connolly, guys. You know, I just can't hide it anymore. And look, you saw it as well in the title of the episode. Like, so who am I cotton? But um, I have to say with Tony as well, like, I've read his book, fantastic book, follows tweets diligently, sometimes for material, sometimes I'm looking for material, but other times I'm just looking for info on what's actually going on. And as I say at the top of the interview, he's he's great, explaining to the layman what's going on. I also had a sense as well that because he's obviously, obviously got a very professional front and he's superb what he does. I had a sense as well that he'd be good crack if you loosened him up. I wish I could um, have met him in person and... I don't know. I don't know where this is going. I hopefully know we're weird. Unless, like, you think it's weird that I would mind having, you know, say no, game of Twister with Tony Connolly some sometime in my place or his place. If he's if he's if he's happy with that, I'm totally open to that. Yeah. Um, anyway, but even in the online setting, guys, I was dead right. He's great crack, and like all jokes aside, I was absolutely buzzing that he agreed to do it. We talk sheep recognition technology. He opens up to me about his filthy addiction. And also we talk more serious stuff as well and the intricacies of how we got here and what might happen next from someone uniquely positioned to understand the lay of the land. So that's it, guys. I hope you enjoy it. I mean, you're in very capable hands here, guys, with, with this interviewer because one of the first questions I asked Tony is, do you love Brexit? Ladies and gentlemen, Tony Connolly. I have to say, guys, I'm absolutely buzzing to be joined this morning by Tony Connolly, the, I would say, the rock star of Brexit. <laughs> Tony, how are you doing? I'm great, Tag. How are you? Let me just plug my guitar in. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm a big fan of yours anyway. You know, I've read your book and I, I watch a lot of stuff. I think you're extremely trenchant on Brexit. You you made it understandable even for the likes of me. And, um, Thanks very much. I'm, I'm buzzing to be chatting to you. And I'm going to kick off, if you don't mind, with a question I think all Irish people are wondering. Brexit, was it all actually into Kenny's fault? <laughs> I think it was David Cameron's fault, actually. <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, it certainly fell into Enda Kenny's lap. I mean, I think, you know, whose fault was Brexit? Well, this was a decision by the British electorate. It was a campaign by Brexiteers and Eurosceptics for a long time, and they managed to push their agenda to make it centre stage. And you had the rise of UKIP as well that was threatening the David Cameron's Conservative Party. And he was trying to throw kind of red meat to the backbenchers by distancing himself more and more from the EU, from the European People's Party that he shared with Angela Merkel and trying to polish his credentials as a, as a Eurosceptic. And eventually he offered the British people a in-out referendum. And that was going to be on the basis of a, a renegotiation of Britain's membership, which in the end, if you recall back in February 2016, before the referendum, he got some concessions on migration, on social welfare, 
nothing binding the UK to ever closer union. But in the end, these were never going to be enough for the hardliners who just wanted out, basically. And so Enda Kenny launched this referendum campaign. It was a, it was a bit sort of half-baked, half-cocked, <laughs> and he, he paid the price ultimately. Wasn't there some specific incident as well? I remember reading with some lad in a Mayo jersey who, who, <laughs> who was kind of an anti-immigrant kind of shtick that, that kind of yeah. backfired, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I think the Irish government recognised fairly early on that Brexit was going to be a threat to, well, the Irish peace process mm. first and foremost, but also Irish trading links with the UK, which were very important and still are very important. So Enda Kenny was in close contact with David Cameron, but he was also in the UK trying to politely encourage British voters to vote Remain. And he went to a, I think it was a London Mayo Gaelic match. Yeah. It might have been that in, in uh, North Ryslip or some some suburb of, of London. And uh, he was pressing the flesh and glad-handing people. And uh, <laughs> he, um, he was kind of accosted by a man in a Mayo jersey who was saying that he was sick of foreigners <laughs> taking people's jobs in the UK. <laughs> so that was a slight sort of fly in the televisual ointment at the time. Yeah. but And I, th- and I think this reflected a, a, a somewhat a truism about Brexit in that newer Irish arrivals in the UK were very much open to the Irish government's warning and message about Brexit. But older voters who had been in the UK for 40 or 50 or 60 years were just as likely to vote leave as their neighbors were they were less convinced they were more, you know older and and perhaps more conservative voters so when the irish government were visiting irish centers around the uk they were suddenly taken aback by the fact that this message was not getting through to a lot of older irish voters who were clearly going to vote leave that's mad do you mind if i ask you like it's ever so slightly um personal question before we get on to the, mm. or before we proceed with the brexit stuff like I've talked to a few people, say, on the Republican side or Unionist side or, say, Welsh nationalists and asked them, you know, ultimately, do you think Brexit was a good thing? Because there's obviously a horror around people's jobs and livelihoods and the hassle that it's causing for everyone. But on a personal level, like you became such a star during Brexit that you were actually affecting currencies. Um, (laughs) Like, do you love do you love Brexit? um, Well, I, like th- that that was a completely unexpected development of of the reporting on Brexit. I mean, I, I certainly I have a very clear memory of the day of the result, the yes. referendum result, and Brussels was in disarray. You know, reporters were running all over the place trying to get reaction. What was it going to mean? When were they going to trigger Article Fifty? And I had been doing a fair amount of study about what Britain leaving the EU might mean, what they might lose out on, you know, the single right. market, the customs union. And the, the more I read into it, the more I thought, well, should they be, they'd be a bit daft to do all that? I mean, that's, you know, economic sort of self-harm. I mean, that, that was how it appeared to me from just the facts of, of throwing up trade barriers to your nearest trading block and trading partners. And then when the Irish question began to loom large as well, I remember there was one at one point on the day after the result, I just had this intuition that I could be doing this for like, two or three years mm. <laughs> and it's now like five years since the referendum and I'm still reporting on Brexit every day um, and nobody I think anticipated how central the Irish question would be to it mm. to the withdrawal agreement and then the trade and cooperation agreement and how it would really sort of shake to the foundations the relationship between Ireland and the UK 
and then reawaken a lot of the tensions and polarizations in Northern Ireland. Because I had been in Brussels for you know a good number of years, I understood how the EU works. I, I understood you know more than most people the intricacies of the single market and the customs union. I broadcast and write in English. I'm an Irish person. I grew up by the border. So it meant I, you know, it was a kind of a perfect storm of relevance for me to be in a suddenly in a position where people were turning to me and going like, what does this mean? Because uh, I, I started writing these long pieces in the, on the RT website. And then it was on the basis of that, I got approached to write the book. So the more, the more you read into it, then yeah, it does become a kind of a filthy addiction <laughs> after a while and you can't get away from it. Well, I'm the same. I'm in the grips of the same addiction. I'm just doing it through the prism of comedy, I suppose. But yeah, I remember reading you saying that your role was actually to explain, which is exactly what you just mm. said, that you're actually just explaining the intricacies of it. So with that yeah. in mind, there, there's something that, that I came across that I didn't actually know at all. And I'd love for you to share a bit of it with our listeners, which is that there was this House of Lords proposal for a bilateral agreement between Ireland and the UK, which presumably was going to go to Brussels then. So it almost like we'd sorted out ourselves and then presented to Europe, which was shot down pretty early was this a missed opportunity do you think and and could you tell us a little bit about it the house of lords they had a number of committees that were looking into brexit and they had existing committees on the eu and the thing about the house of lords is they are less inclined to be ideological when they're exploring an issue so they they just want to find out the facts you know it's, it's a good investigating committee and these committee hearings happened in 2016 after the referendum and they, they were very very detailed and they really got to the nub of a lot of the problems about Ireland and the relationship between London and Dublin and the the sort of shattering effect that Brexit was going to have I mean in in particular the fact that Irish and British Ministers were meeting each other all the time at EU council meetings and they were able to just keep that relationship close. And Ireland and the UK had very similar interests at EU level, especially on taxation, on the single market, on on digitalization. And the, the House of Lords was doing a lot of really good work on exploring the problems that Brexit was now throwing up especially in, in terms of Northern Ireland, in terms of things like the the European arrest warrant. You know, they would have hearings and they would bring PSNI officers in. They would bring legal experts. They really seemed to get to grips with the nature of the problem when it came to Ireland. And then, of course, they would do up a report on their findings. One of the recommendations was that there would be a bilateral agreement between Ireland and the UK to solve the problems. And then, as you say, bring that agreement to Brussels. But... I think at the same time, it was made very clear to Ireland that this would be a negotiation between the EU and the UK, not, not, a, not a bilateral negotiation. So right. Ireland, in a sense, was going to outsource its interests to Michel Barnier, to the EU. And, you know, I, I think also there was a concern that, yeah, Ireland would become a kind of a Trojan horse for mm. the UK, that... The UK would say, ah, well, we want to do X, Y, and Z to make sure there's no return to a hard border and to protect the common travel area. But uh, for that to happen, then the EU needs to give us X, Y, and Z. So there was a concern in Brussels that Ireland could become a Trojan horse if this thing was bilateralized. And I don't, to be honest, I don't think politically or in the civil service, there was really that much appetite for a a bilateral agreement with the UK ahead of time. They felt that Ireland's interests were going to be better protected when they had the the support of the EU as a whole behind them. And of course, 
I mean, the, the European Commission is the ultimate guardian of the treaties and the treaties are what deal with the rules of the single market and the customs union. So it's always the commission's place to negotiate in that sphere. So it, it couldn't, you couldn't have a, I mean, there, there was true, there were, there were some officials in the Department of Agriculture who were saying, could we not have a bilateral trade agreement with the UK for agri-food? Yeah. I remember Phil Hogan telling me that he heard this and he just sort of slapped that down immediately. He said, you know, you can't, like, the, the European Commission represents Ireland when it comes to trade. <laughs> That's just the way it is. So so that just that just never took off, that idea. And then I suppose a corollary question, which you've touched on already, but like are Anglo-Irish relations as bad now as they've been since maybe even the Troubles, in your, in your opinion? I mean, I, I think in the Troubles, there were real, live, dangerous times. Back in 72, after Bloody Sunday, the British embassy was burned down in Dublin. There were real, you know, bleak moments in Anglo-Irish relations. I mean, I suppose the tragedy of Brexit is that it happened when relations between Ireland and the UK were at their best, probably ever. You had the iconic visit of the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, to Ireland, and then the reciprocal visit by President Higgins to the UK. David Cameron and Enda Kenny were, were kind of mates. Um, <laughs> you, you had a, an arrangement whereby the chief civil servants in all government departments from Ireland would go to the UK and meet their counterparts once a year, or vice versa, the UK permanent secretaries would come to Ireland. So you had a very close relationship and then Brexit comes along and that has certainly damaged the relationship. And I think, you know, when the protocol was negotiated in 2019, you know, that was seen as, okay, we're, we can now rebuild the relationship. We have an agreement. But of course, that hasn't been the end of it. You know, the, the UK keep saying they're going to not implement the protocol or they're going to trigger Article 16. And, you know, that has just keep, kept this, you know, lack of trust going. And there, there are many occasions where Britain has, an, has announced it was going to do something like in, take unilateral action on the protocol and they haven't warned uh, the Irish government they were going to do it. So those things have, have gone down very badly in Dublin. Yeah, there's just that sense of mistrust. Is I suppose what I was thinking. It's like in the troubles, this kind of mutual mistrust is kind of seems to be back. If you don't mind giving us a little sense of the money, the EU money, um, and what it'll mean for Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland not to have that money, because we hear a lot about in conversations, for instance, about unity. We hear a lot about the the subvention from Westminster of approximately 10 billion or maybe lower than that. There was an awful lot of very effective money from the EU going to NI, wasn't there? Yeah, well, the, well, there was the peace funds, which there that was various rounds of, of funding, and I think over time, I think since the I think they they came in around I think it was the late nineties or early two thousands. I can't remember exactly when, but I mean, I think there's there's been seven or eight billion euro pumped into Northern Ireland, and then you have the interreg funds as well, which directly go to the border areas. They've been very important because they 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 specifically target reconciliation projects, so you know grassroots organizations you know on both sides and and the funny thing was that any like american money coming into northern ireland was always seen as, as a bit nationalist <laughs> and not really trusted by the unionists whereas eu money ironically it was seen as kind of neutral and they would take mm. it you know but actually they, they both governments the government and the eu the british government and the eu have said that that money would continue for the time being okay but of course the problem now is that the protocol is such a big change to life in Northern Ireland. The question is, can Northern Ireland institutions or businesses or politicians have some 
role in how the protocol is implemented or any kind of oversight role. And that's something they're looking at at the, at the moment in, in the commission. I'm very interested to know, like, so for instance, Adam Price of Plaid has kind of talked about the enviable support that Ireland received during this whole thing. And he's kind of looking at like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be part of Europe? I'm just wondering, like, as an Irish journalist, was that your sense on the ground in Brussels, like, that they were just, they were all for the boys in green? Like, were they treating you particularly well and stuff because you were Irish? <laughs> no, not, not, not particularly. Um, <laughs> um, there's a few factors that you have to bear in mind when Brexit happened. First of all, Ireland was very well prepared. The Irish Civil Service had done a lot of work across the board on, on what a leave vote might mean. And Ireland... At the time, and still, I mean, it was it was represented by very able diplomats in Brussels who were able to kind of educate the EU institutions and other EU capitals on the real risk to the peace process if you had a hard border. On the institution side, I mean, as, as I mentioned, all the peace money that mm. the EU had put in, I mean, that, that reflects the fact that when it came to EU regional policy. They were very aware of Ireland. There was a, an initiative set up by José Manuel Barroso in 2004, where they invited civil servants from Northern Ireland to get seconded into the EU institutions. There was a feeling that the Irish peace process had been more quietly supported by the EU than by America with money and, and influence. And it was a success. And you know, if you look back in the 1990s, there weren't too many EU peace initiatives that were successful. I mean, you think of the Bosnian the Balkan Wars on Europe's doorstep, catastrophic bloodletting. Europe wasn't able to do anything about it. But here they thought, well, Northern Ireland is a, is a peace process, is a success. And in fact, they were using the model of EU funding for Northern Ireland as an exemplary way of dealing with post-conflict reconciliation. And I mean, there were officials going to Colombia to explain to the to FARC rebels how the peace money for Northern Ireland worked. The EU was all ears when it came to Ireland saying, we have a problem here with Brexit. Also, Ireland had come out of the bailout. It had been seen as a poster child for complying with the bailout, getting back on your feet. You know, people can argue about whether that was right or wrong, but that was the view in Brussels that Ireland was a loyal member of the EU. EU membership was still popular in Ireland despite the bailout. And Ireland was staying, whereas Britain was leaving. So it was always going to favour the country that was staying. And then Enda Kenny had, you know, a good relationship with Angela Merkel. If you've got Angela Merkel on your side, and she was a master of the detail of the Irish border, then you're in business. Now, I think the Irish government wanted to go further in protecting the Good Friday Agreement. They wanted the EU to go further in, I suppose, making sure there was absolutely zero risk to the Good Friday Agreement. But in fact, the EU was saying, well, we, we can only go as far as where EU law is concerned. So that means that the, the withdrawal agreement in the end was, was, was quite a careful balance of making sure that North-South cooperation could continue and that the all-island economy continue. And that's why the solution of Northern Ireland staying part of the single market was, was in the mix. Now, of course, if, we, if you go back, Theresa May was going to have a much softer Brexit, which would have meant no... Irish sea border, but she couldn't get that through the House of Commons. So that's where we are today. We have a much harder Brexit. And this is kind of a corollary question because I've, I've actually read and I've heard you say that the British simply didn't do their homework and they were outwitted by the EU. I mean, do you feel like the EU actually understood the North better, bizarrely, than, than the UK government did? Well, this is a very good question because the Irish government 
were kind of in the room, you know, they were on the mm. EU side of the table. Oh, yeah. They were in a position to make the argument that if Northern Ireland is out of the single market and the customs union, then you will have a hard border. Now, at the time, you'll remember the UK was pushing for a couple of things. They were, first of all, saying, well, the Irish border is all about trade and customs. And that's for the kind of later negotiation. That's for the future relationship trade agreement. We shouldn't be dealing with it in the withdrawal agreement or the divorce negotiations. The Irish government said, absolutely not. We have to deal with this in the divorce. Otherwise, again, it becomes a bargaining chip for the UK later on. And the EU absolutely fully agreed. And that meant that when the divorce negotiations happened, it was made very clear to the UK, you have to sort out Ireland first. You have to sort out Ireland in the divorce We're not going to be sorting it out in the trade negotiations. So therefore, that kind of forced the UK into a kind of a corner, if you like. And yeah, you could argue that they were completely unprepared for the Irish question. Like it didn't, it rarely came up in in the campaigning of the referendum. And they completely underestimated the extent to which the EU would take Ireland's position. I mean, Michel Barnier was given the mandate by EU leaders. And if you look at the negotiating guidelines that he got in 2017, April 2017, paragraph 11 says the EU has supported the Irish peace process and it will continue to protect the achievements, benefits and commitments of the Good Friday Agreement and with the aim of avoiding a hard border. That sort of stayed in the DNA of the EU negotiating approach And at each time, the UK was saying, well, let's deal with this in future relationship. No, we can't. Well, let's deal with this using alternative arrangements, high-tech stuff, you know, facial recognition for sheep, uh, (laughs) which was actually a thing they were looking at at one point. No way, Um, really? (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, And the EU was going, well, we can look at those, but they're not really going to solve the problem. (laughs) And at each time, the... There was a kind of a pattern. The, the UK would protest and say, no, we, we can solve it like this. Ireland would say, well, you're still, it might be a high-tech border, but it's still a border and it's still going to shatter the all-Ireland economy. You've got all, of course, you've got all this milk going back and forth, pigs going north, sheep coming south, the famous Baileys, you know, t- you know, 50 border crossings to make a bottle of Baileys or whatever it was. I mean, it was, it was very hard for the UK to win those arguments at the time. And they got forced into a position where they had to accept what the, e- the EU medicine. Now, of course, when Theresa May was around, it was like, okay, we'll, we'll solve the border through a future trade relationship that will be so close that we won't need to have any border. And the EU said, well, okay, we can try that. But if that doesn't work, then we have the backstop. Or if alternative arrangements don't work, then we have the backstop. So the backstop was actually the third option when she was around. But nobody in Ireland or Europe believed that the other, the first two options would work. Okay. And then Boris Johnson came along and said, okay, we're going to scrap the backstop, which he did. But then he got something which was even worse for unionists, which was a fully fledged Irish sea border, you know, so that was how it panned out. And actually on that perfect segue, do you feel that Boris effectively threw loyalism or threw unionism under the bus to get Brexit done? Is it a conscious thing that he did? Well, he certainly rushed in to, I mean, if you remember what happened in the autumn of 2019, he was completely stymied by the British Parliament. Parliament basically forbade him from exiting with no deal. So he had to get a deal and he tried all sorts of things. He tried to have a he tried to go back to the high-tech customs yeah. border, drones, all that sort of stuff. 
and he had a key phone call with Angela Merkel and she just said, we're not having a customs border on the island of Ireland. That's it. He had accepted that there would be an all-Ireland zone for goods and agri-food. And even that in itself would have created a sea border. But then he was forced into accepting that there would have to be a customs sea border and then they would work out how to minimize the impact of that. But I mean, this is all done in, in a breakneck speed in October 2019. And then he knew that if he got Brexit done, he, he would go off and win a landslide election, which he did. So agreed this protocol, which he now hates and wants to trash at every turn and is refusing to implement. So a lot of people here think the British negotiated with their fingers crossed behind their backs. Wow. I mean, that that's a genuine feeling that in the end, he had planned... Or I mean, some people say that he's not even that strategic a thinker that he would say, right, we'll agree to this. And then in 2021, we will have a, a campaign of disruption and lack of implementation. But when he went to Northern Ireland and said, if you get papers, throw them in the bin, you're not, you don't have to fill those papers in. Maybe he was being absolutely genuine because he, he was determined ultimately to wreck the protocol and then you know, make it unworkable. We shall see. That's still work in progress. Having been right inside the machine since 2016, is there a particular funny story that kind of strikes you like that kind of sums up the whole shit show of it? Well, I mean, there were there were certainly some really heightened kind of moments as a journalist that you find yourself in the kind of middle of a story and it was certainly great I mean by the time the negotiations got underway I had a good command of the issues my book had come out and instead of me trying to contact diplomats from other member states who specialize in Brexit you know they were contacting me saying oh I've read your book and do you want to meet and so that that was all very helpful in actually you know reporting the story and then it was in December 2017 when I don't know if you call, there was the joint report that basically the the EU and the UK had to agree a joint report that would allow the negotiations to go into the next stage. And that was basically when the backstop was sort of formalized in, in a document. But nobody knew what this paper would contain. It was very highly secretive. Theresa May was going to come over to meet Jean-Claude Juncker for lunch and they would sign off on it. And I was just getting nowhere with um, my Irish contacts. There, there was a complete sort of blackout. But I did have a couple of contacts elsewhere in the institutions. And I managed to get a couple of key paragraphs from the document. And then I went to, because something like that is so sensitive, you need to get a second source. So I went to a second source. I texted the source, the what I had been told. And the source texted back something very kind of cautious saying, that's in line with what I've been briefed. <laughs> so I knew <laughs> that was the confirmation. So RT broke the story that the UK had accepted the principle that Northern Ireland would stay aligned to the single market and the customs union, Oh yeah, which is really the genesis of the protocol. That had never been known before. And so we broke the story when Theresa May was flying over to meet Jean-Claude Juncker. And at the time, the DUP were getting briefed in number 11 Downing Street by, I think, Gavin Barwell, her, her chief of staff. We flashed it on Twitter and it sort of went went viral on Twitter. And DUP phones were starting to flash in that meeting. And they were going, hold on a second, we're not signing up to this. <laughs> and so by the time Theresa May landed in Brussels 
to meet Juncker for lunch because of our story all hell was breaking loose. Then Arlene Foster came out and said they, the DUP, who were supporting, of course, Theresa May, they were keeping her in government. Yeah. They says, we're not, we're not accepting this. Wow. So I was suddenly kind of cast into the middle of the storm. But I mean, I, I, I was absolutely solid on my contacts and the information. And it was actually true. I mean, the, the way we reported it was very careful. We said, this is a draft. We're not saying this is here, but this is the UK appear now to have conceded this principle. And they had conceded the principle even though it was like, as I said, it was the third option, but it was still in there. Uh, and so that that was uh, that was quite a moment. Um, and then people were blaming me for derailing the talks. And I was going, well, it's not it's not my job to you know to you know uh, gently walk the DUP through. I mean, this is the British. If they didn't do it, you know, I'm, I'm not going to no. hold the story because I'm afraid how the DUP will react. I mean, I was reporting to my audience, which is Irish and European now. Yeah. So, so that was that was quite a moment. There's another kind of funny moment when the Wirral, the agreement between Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar was taking shape in Liverpool. Do you remember they went to this hotel and and, and this was kind of seen as a last chance, but they they cooked up this this deal. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And as, as it turned out, I was meeting a couple of British officials in Brussels, and, and they were they were due to brief me on whatever the latest goings on. When I was talking to them, I got a phone call from somebody who was involved in the Liverpool discussions and they were telling me that there was a deal. And so the two British officials that were briefing me, they kind of leaned in. What's he saying? <laughs> so, so they didn't know there had been a deal. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Right. They did. Okay. And they're, what, what are they saying? What are they saying? <laughs> so, so uh, I was in a position to suddenly brief the people who were briefing me and tell them that there had been a deal and, of course, I didn't know a lot of the detail about the deal at that stage, but um, that was uh, quite a quite a moment. That's incredible. I don't know how you avoid just being kind of drunk on power in a situation like that. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, well, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't call it power. I mean, it's 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 a case of you know n- knowing the subject, knowing what questions to ask, and yeah. it's just a lot of hard work as well. I mean, just like you have to cold call people all the time to get information, and you can be a pain in the ass. Uh, t- sometimes to people that you're ringing them at all hours and trying to find out but um, it, it always helps if you know your subject you know you know what questions to ask and then if you get a line from somebody you can then use that information to leverage information from another contact and it's been, it's been a great learning experience as a journalist I must say so like you look you don't have a crystal ball and I know that you can't tell me what you'd like to happen mm. but if you were just pure speculation in terms of say the next 10 or 20 years what would be the potential constitutional consequences of Brexit on these islands I suppose the, the next year is going to be critical because we still I mean the at the moment so we're we're speaking at the beginning of October the the, the EU is going to bring out a bunch of proposals after the Tory party conference, probably next week, in fact, to try and uh, go back into negotiation with the EU, with the UK on the protocol. These will be more flexibilities in how the protocol is implemented on medicines, on customs, on agri-food. Again, giving the Stormont institutions more more of a say. And yet at the same time, we've had, we've had a lot of kind of threats from the UK that they're going to trigger Article 16. So once the EU proposals come forward, there will be a period of negotiation with the UK. And certainly the EU would hope that that will just get this thing sorted by Christmas, that they will finally get the UK will say, OK, we accept that these 
measures will make the protocol more workable, less onerous for people. And then everybody goes home and it's all done and dusted. The alternative reality, which I think is still very likely and possible, is that the UK still decides that that's not enough and that they trigger Article 16 or they do something else that will make the protocol unworkable. And then we are in in trouble. We're, We're in serious difficulty. And of course, you've got the whole crisis within unionism at the same time. And then... If the protocol isn't working, then the EU will say, well, how's, how's our single market being protected? Will we have to do checks then on the Irish border? And then we get back to square one. And then, I mean, beyond that, you've got more destabilization, more political polarization, more clamor for United Ireland. I mean, on the United Ireland front, I've no idea. Opinion polls are shift back and forth. I think certainly a United Ireland is more likely because of Brexit. It has kind of changed the debate around the United Ireland, whereas before Brexit, I think a lot of people were pretty content with the status quo. You know, yeah. if there's a majority who want a United Ireland, a good Friday agreement, say they can have the vote. And if the vote's carried, then it'll happen. And I think you had Catholics in Northern Ireland who were reassured that their Irish identity was protected by the good Friday agreement and that they wouldn't necessarily want to kind of push for United Ireland. But nowadays... There, you know, there's the demographic shifts. You've got the rise in the Alliance Party. United Ireland is being seen not in terms of ancient myths and stuff, but like, okay, if there is United Ireland, will we get the same health service as the as the NHS? I mean, these these are all sort of part of a, a, a debate, which I think it's important that people have that debate. Absolutely, but I just I just wouldn't I wouldn't want to predict. But I still think the protocol hasn't settled the Brexit question for Ireland by any means, and it's up to the UK now whether they will implement it or whether unionism can finally reconcile itself to it um, that's going to be a difficult question perfect and the final question is a bit of a speculation as well so feel free to bat it away but um do you do you feel like the eu would just love to see an independent scotland now and welcome it into the the eu if only to get their own back on on the absolute horror they've gone through with english nationalism for the last five five years i mean my, my honest answer is that the EU instinctively runs a mile from any constitutional upheavals in a member state. Right. I mean, you've got Catalonia, you've got Kosovo. They just won't get involved in the debate. Having said that, if there is a referendum and if Scottish people vote for independence, then there's no reason why Scotland wouldn't be entitled to apply for membership. The fact that a lot of their laws would be kind of aligned with EU rules from a sort of legacy point of view, uh, even though Scotland is also out of the EU for the moment, you know, Scotland would have a good case at relatively an accession process that, that will have its challenges. But, you know, compared to like Montenegro or Serbia, Albania, Scotland would have a favorable wind, I would say. And if Scotland was an independent country, I mean, it would be perfectly entitled to apply for membership. And then, yeah, I mean, if there's an if there's an independent Scotland, then what does that mean for Ireland or Northern Ireland? Yeah, that's another that's another day's work. <laughs> that's as, that's as far as I'll go. Yeah, no, that's great. Will you yeah. miss Brexit when it's done and dusted? Well, I, it's funny. I, I, at Christmas time, when do you remember the trade negotiations ran all the way up to Christmas Eve, and because of COVID, I was going to stay in Christmas for Christmas in Brussels for the first time. I usually go home to Derry and. Uh, so my, my wife is, is from Denmark, so she's also a journalist. And on the continent, you know, we celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. So the, it meant the Christmas dinner was on the night that the trade negotiations were coming to a close. 
I remember trying to peel potatoes and be on the phone to contacts going, what's happening with the negotiations? And it was quite a mad, insane day. And at the end of it, I thought, oh, great. Brexit is done. Now I can sort of get back to my life yeah. and do, do something else. And of course, within a couple of weeks, I'm back on the protocol and Brexit is not done by, by any means. So no, I, I, find, I still find it compelling and it is good to try and stay on top of the brief so that you, 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 know, you don't miss stuff or you can you know, try and still get exclusive stories and stuff. That's still a sort of driving factor. But yeah, I mean, part of me would absolutely welcome being able to do other stuff, you know. <laughs> but we, I mean, we, we've got our own Brexit Republic podcast, which is a lot of fun. Of course. And, uh, it would it would be a pity that that would have to sort of come to an end at some point. <laughs> yeah. We might just call it something else. Exactly. All right, Tony, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Ty. Great, great talking to you. So, guys, what do you think of that one? So, we can add Tony Connolly's name to the long list of people and institutions with whom the DUP is at war. I don't want to brag there now, but I feel like because I've listened to a load of Tony Connolly interviews, like, and I don't know if I've ever heard him being so kind of like talking about personal stuff and just really relaxed and stuff. And look, I'm going to call it, guys. I think we're buddies now. Do you know what I mean? So like I am, like I have rang him there now a good few times and like it is ringing out, but well, no, he, he answered once actually, all right, to be fair to me, he goes, I'm at lunch with young Claude Yonker, you looper. Leave me alone. <laughs> Pure buddy banter, like, you know yourself. And in fairness to him as well, very diplomatic answers around both Scotland and the United Ireland. Here's why it mightn't happen. Here's why it might happen. Goodbye and good luck. <laughs> Very skillfully done. But an absolute pleasure. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I learned an awful lot from that interview. We're learning as well, guys. We're having fun, but we're learning. Join me next time as I uh, begin a new section. No, I don't. I don't. Do I? Oh, I do. Yeah. Join me next time. Where I start talking to some northern nationalists. Bet you wish you were here.